History Makers. I'm Matt Prater. And I'm joined this week by John Hall. We're speaking with journalist and author Phil Smith. Over to you, John. Joining us on History Makers today, we have Phil Smith, a journalist with ABC 612 in Brisbane, also the author of several books, uh, a member of the Defence Forces at Reserves. And Phil, can you tell us a little bit about your journey? It's funny you should ask that, John. I've been uh, pondering that in the last little while. I'm, I'm at that point where a lot of Australian blokes get to be. 45 years of age... Uh, and you start to see the milestones in your life, I suppose. So you find yourself thinking, well, where did the years all go? And uh, what have I done with those years, I suppose? And that's a question I think a lot of people probably ask. I think a lot of fellas define themselves by their work. You know, if you meet somebody at a party, one of the first things you ask is, what do you do? And uh, I sometimes wonder about the value of that. But I suppose the things that define me are things like um, my relationship to God, my relationship with my wife and and our two daughters. Those are the things that that will last. Um, And I think in the course of the last few years, I've seen particularly some blokes who didn't have anything except their work. And if suddenly that comes to an end, then life is a pretty sad sort of place. Uh, I travelled around a lot as a young person. I grew up mostly in, uh, in North Queensland. As a teenager in the 70s, um, like so many, I was looking for some sense of direction, purpose, where life would go. And I think in that middle 70s period, we were still at the end of that post-war time where you finished high school and you were supposed to know exactly what you would do. And then you would either do an apprenticeship or you would go to tertiary education, you'd get a job. And you would work for somebody until you were 65 and they'd give you a gold watch. And that was the world. And, uh, you know, things have changed an awful lot. And I recall finishing uh, grade 12 and not knowing what it was I really wanted to do. And that was a a time of enormous stress. What do you do? And uh, I think I was very, very fortunate in that I I stumbled into studying media and journalism and, and doing a degree in that at Rockhampton. And... I love telling stories. I mean, if I could write it on my tax return, it would say I'm a storyteller. And as a journalist, as a broadcaster, that's what I've been able to do to earn a living. And I began my career uh, writing advertising copy in uh, provincial daily newspapers, regional dailies, and then moved into news journalism uh, in uh, commercial radio. After a little while, um, and about the time that we were married, I moved into uh, television with the ABC, And then we went to Darwin with what was then the 7.30 report, worked on a number of other programs, and then um, back to commercial television, uh, working with the Wynn Television Network, and then uh, returned to the ABC uh, for a little while. I was their central Queensland correspondent, and then left for a little while and went to the Defence Forces. And I worked in uh, information operations and uh, public affairs with the RAAF, came back to the civilian media about five years ago and have been working in radio ever since. Along the way, yeah, wrote two novels, a couple of thrillers, and, uh, yeah, it's all been good fun. You're very passionate about music, and I understand as well you were instrumental back in the day in in helping to bring some Christian music uh, to parts of Queensland where they simply hadn't had um, concerts and live performances before. Can you uh, tell us about that? It was one of those times, I suppose, when youthful enthusiasm overcame any sense of wisdom or, or you know, what you could and couldn't do. I suppose the, uh, the young blokes that were just a couple of years older than me that I really looked up to, um, they had this attitude, well, you know, why can't we have uh, the same kind of concerts in a provincial city 
um, that, that are in Sydney and Melbourne. So guys like Rob Harling, Chris Ireland, uh, Peter Ireland, there was a, a leadership sort of team and they just started writing letters and next thing you know we had the Jesus concerts happening in North Queensland and, uh, and there were people like Larry Norman, Randy Stonehill, Barry Maguire, Chuck Gerard, Love Song, uh, any number of international acts were, were actually brought to, to Townsville at a time when, I mean, we didn't have any of this sophisticated kind of stuff that you find at a festival. You know, we would organise a school refectory or concert hall and some lighting and uh, put together a sound system out of what could be scrounged and an international act and uh, hope the costs were covered. And they always were. And, yeah, a lot of people were blessed by that music. It's, uh, it's culturally significant. It's spiritually significant for a community to have a sense of belonging through music. Music obviously important to you. You play the guitar. What are your musical influences? What do you listen to these days? Just about anything. And I think that's what I love about something like the Australian Gospel Music Festival. Um, there are things here that, that I wouldn't normally um, you know, buy a CD of, but because they're here, I'll go and have a listen. But, um, you know, uh, the Sons of Korah, uh, Soul Frame. I, I do like Australian content. I really enjoy that. Uh, and on the other hand, as I say, it's, it's always good to get some of the older influences and uh, the opportunity to hear you know, guys that are my age and older still making good music. I really enjoy that. Randy Stonehill's still probably one of the writers and one of the poets who, who speaks into my life. Phil, can you tell us a little bit about the challenge, I guess, of, of people wondering how you can be a journalist working within the secular media but also being a Christian. Can you explain more about that? Is it a challenge, as people think it is? Um, and particularly within an organisation such as the ABC, um, how do you approach that? Yes, it's a challenge, but I don't know if it's a challenge in the way people imagine it might be. For me, the challenge would be the same whether I worked for um, what we would call a Christian media outlet or any other, because surely the ethics of a journalist don't change. There is an effort to find the truth. There is an effort to be as unbiased as one can possibly be. There is an effort to put aside your own uh, interest and really seek to meet the interest and the need of your reader, listener, viewer, whatever it may be, for information. To me, it is one of the most worthwhile callings because our society, more than ever, needs good quality information. A democracy cannot function without that good quality information from which people can draw their own conclusions. We live in a wonderful country. One of the things I love about Australia is the media. You can get everything you want from the quality, and here we go, and I'm at the risk of, of putting things on a spectrum, but you know what I mean, from programs of the quality of the Sunday program, Four Corners, that sort of calibre of television, right through to Big Brother. <laughs> you know, it's all there for you to choose from. Same with newspapers and magazines and radio programs. There's such a variety and a range from which people can draw their information and then make the day-to-day -day decisions. Things like, what do I think about the environment? Do I send my children to a private or a public school? How will I vote in the next election? Do I want to engage in a community group? Um, what about my local government? That's where we get all that. That's our window on that wider world that enables us then to play a part in community. People who say, I don't read the papers, I don't listen to the news, I like, 
how do you engage with the world around you if you don't know what's going on? And as a journalist, as a broadcaster, a storyteller, to be able to, to do the mirror thing and put that out there, it's a wonderful privilege. It's an essential part of a functioning, healthy, democratic society. How does your own faith then assist you in that role of telling people's stories? I think it informs me. I don't know if it assists me. Um, I place a value on people because of what I believe. I believe that every individual is of ultimate and eternal worth. And that's why their story is worth telling. One of the things that disappoints me about our media is that we scale people often and we say that there are celebrities whose lives, for some reason, are more interesting than Joe the plumber. No, that's not the case. But then that's, that's the way I see things. So that is something for me that says everybody's story is really important and it's worth telling, not just for its sensation value or whatever. But if it's news, if it has an impact on somebody else, then it's an important story to tell. Tell it honestly and, and be upfront with that. Treat people with respect and regard. Try not to sensationalise just to big note yourself. Don't make me the story. Just be the storyteller. Those are the things that come out of the things that shape me and part of that is my faith. Phil, can you tell us a little bit about your experiences in, in the reserves and with the Air Force? And one of the areas you visited was Banda Arche in the wake of the Boxing Day 2004 tsunami. Can you tell us a little bit about what you were doing there and how you were challenged by what you observed on the ground over there in the wake of what was obviously a, a massive disaster? Two years on, and this is still not an easy thing to, um, to talk through, it was a life-changing um, point. Um, I spent the best part of six weeks in, in Bandache. I was not amongst, thank heaven, the very first people in there. Uh, I was on the first rotation that took place a couple of weeks in. 140,000, that's a guess, dead. The scope and the scale of this thing uh, I, I have images still in my mind of uh, what they call a Type 3 fishing boat, about 50 feet long, sitting on top of a two-storey house. That boat must have weighed 35, 40 tonnes. A wave carried it and dropped it on top of that house. How big was that? The earthquake that destroyed the houses first and killed many people and then the gas mains burst and there were fires that couldn't be put out and then that wave came through and just covered it all in mud and filth and they all just grey, no colour to it. My job in uniform was to provide the liaison between the Australian Task Force and all the international media that were there. Uh, we were living in the remains of one of the major hospitals there. <laughs> My team and I lived in the morgue. It had been the morgue, it wasn't being used as a morgue but it's still pretty freaky down the end of that walkway was uh, the the mental asylum part and people had been simply locked in there and when the wave came they all drowned behind the doors similar thing had happened in the maternity ward um, where women with their little children could not have escaped the smell was uh, was a thing that yeah it's uh, it's a particular if, if you've ever smelt rotting human flesh it's, uh, it's, it's, and in the mud that would, that would come through 
there were moments where where I got to tell you, you know, there are questions about the meaning of life and the nature of God that you're not game to ask. And they stay in the back of your head because you just don't want to verbalise them. And uh, amongst the 450-odd Australians that were there, somewhere between 30 and 40 of us would, would meet for a church service once a week. And you just had to hang to the stuff that you knew. And we would um, do communion together. All sorts. Catholics, Calathumpians, Charismatics. Stick with what you know. Because there's stuff you'll never understand. I, uh, I learned a lot of things about, again, the value of individuals. There were funny moments too. There have to be. Some of it's pretty black, I suppose, but I recall on one occasion we'd had a camera crew uh, filming some of the stuff that our combat engineers were doing, clearing rubble and moving stuff away. And uh, after they'd gone, this young corporal says, uh, look, sir, I know it's not your sort of part of the thing, but, you know, there's three bodies here and they, the ghost trucks haven't been around for a couple of days and, you know, it's pretty bad. And we'd marked them with flags. And we weren't to touch the bodies. We were to mark them and then call the Indonesians and they would come and take them away and treat them properly. And uh, I said, well, maybe, you know, I'll make a couple of phone calls and see what we can do. He said, we've given them names. Now, again, this will sound very black to people listening, but how you cope with stuff that's right outside reality. They said, that's Bruce and that's Ethel and that's Jessica, the little girl there. She's about 13. And at that stage, my second daughter, Jessica, would have been about 13. I said to him, mate, my daughter's name is Jessica and she's about the same age. He said, oh, I'm sorry, sir. I said, no, 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 that's not the point. You weren't to know. We cope with things in different ways. But I want you to remember that that's not just a body, that is somebody. That what we're here for is to help the families. That's somebody's daughter, somebody's sister, somebody's little friend from school. And what we do here matters. It's not just shifting rubble. It's not just patching people up in the hospital. And it's, it's what we do that counts for a community that needs us. That's what matters. Obviously, even reflecting on that now for you is something very emotional. When you're standing in the midst of that, wh- what is it that you, you come back to that you try and remember about, about God, particularly in a situation like that? This is difficult for a journalist it's difficult for Western thinking. I don't have to understand everything. There is stuff that is beyond understanding. I mean, why do earthquakes happen? Why are there tidal waves? Why does God allow that to happen? I don't know. But I do know that I have a personal, secure relationship with him that will see me beyond the realities of this life and I imagine many of the people listening to this broadcast you know, go to church, um, are people of faith there will be others who will be asking those same kind of questions sometimes we sing the songs you know, about how good things are and you know um, when the uh, oceans roar and uh, thunders roll I will rise above the storm well maybe not it's only a question of scale why is it that some people 
good people, loving, generous, kind people get cancer and die a terrible death? Why is it that some people get swept away in a tidal wave? I don't know. But I do know that that could happen to me. You know, my life is not going to be healthy, wealthy. You know, I do not go along and I I kick hard against some of the teaching I hear in churches these days about if you're faithful to God, you'll have a good life. You know, you'll get all these blessings and you'll have lots of money and you'll have, you know, prosperity and health and all that sort of stuff. That's just not reality. That ain't true. Stuff happens to all kinds of people. But beyond death is is what you know there's an eternity and that's what sustains me is that whatever happens to this body of mine i believe that i will be with god forever and that's a deeply personal relationship with a father god who will care for me beyond the physical dangers and stuff that i might go through Just one last question, Phil. If you only had a a couple of minutes with someone to explain um, your relationship with God and and what it's done for you and also why they perhaps should consider getting to know God, what would you tell them? What would you boil it down to? I would have to compare it to the relationship I have with my wife, which has changed my life. Before I met her, it was all about me. And some days, I've got to admit, you know, still can be. But you find that it's somebody who loves you. And you can't understand why, but you know they do. And you respond to that. And your life changes and it becomes about living for them. Now, the same thing happened to me when I had that personal encounter and and looked up at a, a full moon, starry Easter sky in the outback, in the bush, of Queensland and I recognised and and dealt with God that God actually loves me it's called grace there is no reason I haven't done anything that makes me special particular I have no idea why he would love me the way he does but he does I am his creation and he thinks I'm great <laughs> and that just amazes me In the past, I was a very selfish, directionless, here for a good time, not a long time kind of guy. Since that encounter with God and the recognition that he loves me and I respond to that, there's a whole lot of other things to live for. There are other people to live for and my Heavenly Father to to seek after. I don't know why he loves me, but I know he does. It's like, Kayleen, why would she love me? But she does. I can count on it. I can depend on it. I can't measure it. I can't put a dollar value on it. But it's there absolutely for sure forever. There it is. But you have to recognise that and respond to it. If you're chasing some woman, you know, you've been, you've been trying to win her heart, you've been trying to woo her for I don't know how long, and then finally she turns around and says, Oh, he likes me. And it clicks. It's the same sort of thing. God reaches out and he, he, he taps us on the shoulder and he shows us so many good things through friendships, through experience, through encounter, through all kinds of things. And then suddenly one day you go, oh, oh, and you turn around and recognize that he's been just trying to tell you all this time, I'm your heavenly father and I love you. 
And that's what Jesus' life was all about. That's what he, you know, he came to tell us that and to show us that in his own life. And you respond to that. Everything changes. Thank you very much for sharing some of your story with us today, Phil. Pleasure. History Makers. Thanks for joining us on History Makers. For more info, go to historymakersradio.com. You can listen to this interview again or listen to any of our other shows. Thanks to John Hall for helping us out with this interview. And thanks again to Phil Smith for joining us on History Makers. History Makers.